Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We appreciate all you do every day. People who work in pharmacy make positive change possible, something Altimed understands. Altimed's Pen Needle AltiGuard Safe Pack helps people in pharmacy fulfill their roles as leaders for their patients and in their communities. AltiGuard Safe Pack Pen Needles are an FDA cleared product that provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container, all in one convenient package system. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you protect families and your community from sharps injuries and you remove medical waste from the environment. To learn more, visit altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. That's altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you choose positive change. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Darshan Talks live stream. I'm your host, Darshan Kulkarni. It's my mission to help you trust the products you depend on. As you may know, I'm an an attorney, I'm a pharmacist, and I advise companies with FDA-regulated products. So if you think about drugs, wonder about devices, or obsess over pharmacy, this is a live stream for you. I do have to emphasize that I am an attorney, but I'm not your attorney. My guest is an attorney, but they're not your attorney. Um, so this is not legal advice. I am a pharmacist, but I'm not your pharmacist. So this is not clinical advice. Um, I do these live streams. I do these interviews because they're a lot of fun. And I find myself learning something new every single time. But it would be great to know if someone's actually listening. So if you like what you hear, please feel uh, please, please like, please uh, leave a comment, please subscribe. Uh, if you want to ask questions, uh, my guest would be happy to answer them. I'm, and I'm speaking for him, which I probably shouldn't do, but I expect Absolutely. he'll be happy to answer that. <laughs> uh, please, please leave co- uh, comments so that we can uh, have that engaging discussion. Um, after the talk or during the talk, please share the video. We would love to have other people here at kind of the entire point of this whole thing. Um, I do also want to emphasize that uh, what we're discussing is considerations. They don't necessarily uh, rep- represent or reflect the opinion of the host the guest, or there are our employers. Um, if you want to find me, you can always find me on Twitter at Darshan Talks, or just go to my website at darshantalks.com. Um, today's interview, today's interview is really exciting because I've actually known my guest uh, for several years. Well, the first several years by reputation. Um, then I actually got a chance to I wonder meet what him. that was. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually very, very good. It was very, very good. I, um, I, I remember hearing about you, and I, and I was... Uh, thoroughly impressed that I met you and we actually had a long drive together and was I fun. was even more impressed. That was a fun drive. Um, and and uh, we landed up having a conversation and that was a lot of fun. Um, our, our guest today is, I want to get my uh, words right, he's a longtime FDA regulatory attorney um, and is now the chief regulatory counsel at Varian Medical Systems. Uh, he is, um, he he's, how should I put this? His entrepreneurship has reflected in many of many of the tools I've used and continue to use, and and I found that to be very interesting. And he's he's been very um, um, modest in his description. So if you if you decide to go to his LinkedIn page, which I will flash uh, right here, you will discover more about him and see how amazing he actually is. And he's been kind enough to actually come on today's talk. So I'm really excited. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, 
our guest for today, Michael Swig. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. I'm good there, Darshan. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Um, so, Mike, I, I want to hear a little bit more about um, what, what, first of all, what does Varian do? Varian's, uh, well, first of all, we, uh, I have to, I do have to caveat. I would like to reiterate that any views I express today are solely the, mine and not those of our, my employer or our parent company, Siemens Health and Years. Um, and also uh, that uh, anything I say here is just generally intended to be generally educational and not legal advice. Um, so, and I can't give clinical advice because I'm not qualified. Uh, I'm not a pharmacist, nor am I a doctor, nor did I ever play one on TV. Um, so, did you uh, stay at a holiday are, though? Yeah. So, um, but as far as Varian, we are the world's leading developer of the uh, of a product I hope you never need. Uh, we are the world's leading developer of the uh, radiation therapies uh, equipment that is to treat cancer. Uh, and uh, in addition, we also have a few uh, more collateral products that are used uh, in non non oncology uh, applications. But primarily, we're our, our mission is to uh, create a world without fear of cancer. So that's that's very so that, that, that's a that's a really interesting, really broad um, definition. Creating a world without the fear of cancer. It's an interesting statement, though. It didn't say a world without cancer um, because that that seems like a bit of a reach. But making making it easier to deal with. Um, Absolutely. I, I, Again, that, that's cl clearly. I don't think. I don't think anyone has any illusions that cancer, you know, can be eradicated. Um, you know, it's it's in the DNA essentially. You know, the DNA gone amok. Um, but uh, you know, if you look at uh, what we're, we're uh, trying to do, and in particular, our you know our combination with Siemens, which was uh, consummated, um, announced about a year over a year ago, and then consummated in mid-April, is uh, the merging of the two uh, companies' technologies. They're they're heavily involved in imaging and other areas that uh, complement variants, is to make uh, cancer uh, attackable around the world. Um, the leverage assets not only in the United States, but you know, you know, globally, and we have a presence all over the place. So, uh, and uh, you know, uh, many different ways we're attacking that at, at Varian and, and with our parent company Siemens. Which is really interesting. I mean, I, I kind of have to ask the first question. I know we we had an original goal, and we'll talk about that hopefully. Which is, uh, how do you prep for a uh, a new product launch? Uh, and what does that look like from the perspective of a regulatory attorney? But before we go down that path, I have to ask, um, Varian started off as a, and I'm going to use the term descriptively, but a smaller company and is now part of the Siemens conglomerate, which is massive. What, what is it like in terms of culture change and how do you adjust to the culture change of being part of a smaller company and then being part of a massive, massive group? Well, I understand we weren't that small to begin with. Uh, we were 10,000 employees and uh, over $3.2 billion in revenue. But uh, Siemens, and keep in mind, a Siemens is not, there's more than one Siemens. There's Siemens AG, which is the huge company, which is the the majority owner, as I understand it, of Siemens Health and Ears. Siemens AG is more known for like building hydroelectric plants and things of that sort, you know. Siemens Health and Ears is, was uh, spun out of uh, Siemens AG a few years ago, uh, and they have about 55,000 employees, and you know about I think somewhere around 17 year, billion euros in, in revenue. Uh, so it's a, a large company merging with a very very large company, 
uh, and it's a German company, German-based company. So there's, you know, there's always going to be some challenges, but uh, the integration process has been, uh, I think, very well managed, and uh, there's a real spirit of collaboration between the two companies. We've already seen progress in a number of areas where uh, we've been able to work together to solve uh, our customers' challenges. Uh, you know, and our customers are. For the most part, you know, large, uh, large and small hospitals and clinics that are, are you know, variants uh, uh, arena that are devoted to treating cancer. But uh, the Siemens technology is is uh, not uh, limited to the treatment uh, or the uh, diagnosis of, of cancer. They're really heavily into imaging, so CTs, MRIs, et cetera, uh, ultrasound. Um, so that have applications as, as you know, uh, throughout the different medical challenges that uh, a patient might face. Yeah. Uh, so, so you would know though about the challenges because you're involved not just in uh, being an FDA regulatory attorney, but you're actually also involved in the dispute resolution. Yeah, um, and that's that's always an interesting process because uh, in, in, by dispute resolution, we you know we you know things. Every company makes mistakes, uh, or sometimes your customers think you made a mistake, and so you have to try to resolve that. Uh, and particularly in the United States, you have to do that, in, uh, and, and around the world, you have to do that in a compliant way because you know there's certain laws, healthcare fraud laws, uh, such as the anti-kickback laws, that you have to make sure that you're compliant with, not giving things away for free. Uh, so I work closely uh, with our uh, our compliance department, actually, that uh, which handles uh, oversees our dispute process. And, uh, it's it's a challenge to sometimes see well how did this come about? Uh, and even in a large company that's well established, uh, you know things do happen. So and we try to fix them in a way that's uh, you know uh, is uh, works for both uh, customer and uh, is consistent with the law. So what I'm hearing you say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm hearing you say is that compliance is often involved in avoiding the problem, but inevitably problems will generally happen. That's just that's just the way problems work. Well, yeah, and, so, and I one thing I've always stressed to people is the key thing is everyone's going to make mistakes. An FDA-regulated company or any company that's subject to other uh, governmental regulation, the key is, you know, people are fallible. Uh, but the key is how do you react to that mistake? And that is the key thing. And, uh, you know, you have to be, uh, you have to attack it in a, in a you know, a, a comprehensive way. Um, you know, in the medical device world, we we know the CAPA process, corrective action, preventive action. So um, you if you have an issue, you have to uh, not only, you know, investigate it, uh, uh, identify root cause, uh, correct it, and then take action to make sure it doesn't recur. So that model applies whether you're talking about a, uh, you know, a snafu that uh, happens in the manufacturing line or uh, in distribution or in making a quote. Um, so um, you know, one of the things I'll work with is going forward is uh, to make sure the systems uh, are uh, you know, reviewed to ensure that to the extent possible, these things that lead to disputes don't recur. So, so, so Obviously, when you're talking about international transactions and you're helping people across uh, both in the U.S. or internationally, you're, you're now starting to get into areas like FCPA issues, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act issues. You're getting into things like, uh, as you mentioned, the anti-kickback law, um, which I assume is a lot of the thought processes you're putting into play, uh, which is really the, the, 
the second side, if you will, of compliance. So how do you deal with who I assume is your chief compliance officer? Because I imagine you guys work hand in hand uh, in that process. Uh, we do work uh, collaboratively. It's um, not always the chief compliance officer, um, but uh, you know, there's uh, you know regional compliance officers uh, for like North America, Latin America, the uh, you know Asia Pacific, et cetera. So I work closely with those folks, um, and um, so uh, yeah, there's uh, you know there's always a reactive uh, approach, and there's also always the training and uh, systems approach to making sure things don't occur in the first place. So, so one of the things that always struck me as unusual or odd about compliance, and I, I say this as a person who does uh, compliance as similar to you, um, compliance always goes back, uh, at least from the from the U.S. perspective, to the guidance from I think it was DOJ. I can't remember OIG or DOJ, but one of them put out guidance for life sciences companies, um, yeah, and, and everyone goes back to that. It was OIG. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and um, and that's it's a great guidance. But I, when I read that guidance, the thing that really jumped out at me was this is just the PDCA cycle, uh, the Plan Do Check Act, um, the Deming cycle, if you will. Do you find? Uh, I, I feel like we see that a lot in uh, quality, uh, and and people follow that as part of basically what ASQ, the American Society of Quality, recommends. Do you find people sort of overcomplicate the process? Uh, in compliance or in, uh, in in general sort of in quality or because you also match quality um, or do you find that it is it is being done appropriately overall I think it varies from company to company I mean the um, you know uh, there's a challenge in, in writing processes to make sure that you write them with enough specificity that in, in clarity that they're understandable but you also uh, need to make sure that they're written in a way that you don't you know, box yourself into a corner that's not necessary. Um, and that's one of the great challenges. I don't claim to be the world's greatest expert in, in because I, I, I happen to be the son of a, of a editor. And, and so I, I have a tendency to see all the uh, um, little minutia or nuances in, in how something's written. And uh, so um, I tend to not overwrite, but make sure that there's a lack of amb total lack of ambiguity, if possible, in, in working the processes. So, um, so, but that's you know that can be. You have to be careful that you balance that with you know rea with realities and good be and best practices. So let me ask you this question because you, you've sort of raised the idea here, which is when you're talking about uh, best practices, do you think the goal of an SOP? should be to enable someone who walks in to be able to technically just read the SOP, follow the SOP, and, and do whatever process? Or is the SOP an overriding principle that uh, the work uh, uh, the work orders or, the, uh, or, the, or specific, specific work instruction should be able to give more clarity to? Or how do you, what is your philosophy around SOPs? Well, I actually have a sort of a three-prong three approach to that. Uh, there are policies. Mm -hmm. You know, that typically are more um, general uh, than there are SOPs that that will be as detailed as possible. Uh, but sometimes you actually have to get down, as you mentioned, the work instruction level, where where you know you get into very you know specific granularity. But I do agree that an SOP, uh, in, in my view, the SOP ought to speak 
you know, speak on its own. So whether it be, a, you know, or even a more granular work instruction. So someone ought to be able to come in, be trained on it, and not have to go down and ask Jim or Jane, uh, you know, how do I do something? Uh, it ought, you know, so it, it ought to be very capable from, you know, reading and understanding the SOP and then being trained on it, you know, uh, having all the best SOPs in the world don't do you any good if you don't have training. So, um, so, uh, you know, as I may have mentioned to you once before, I actually have a monomic on, on how you assure, you know, ensure. Please, please. Well, it's basically, I use a please to teach risk avoidance, uh, comprehensively, uh, vigorously, comprehensively and corporately. Uh, and the please is you don't, nothing gets done if you don't have procedures, The the teach is, train yeah if you don't you can have the best procedures in the world if you don't train on them they're worthless um r for risk is record keeping if you don't record it it, it didn't happen you know uh every you know every uh regulatory agency in the world will tell you you know it's not written down it didn't happen um you know and then even if it is written down you have to have good audits you have to a for avoidance is risk avoidance is you got to audit your processes. You got to review them, uh, either with internal audit teams or occasionally bringing people from the outside uh, to make sure you're doing right. Um, you know, uh, vigor. You know, vigorously in, in my monomic is that you have to validate these things. You have to check to see do they really work. Um, and corporately and comprehensively refers to the fact that you have to have good communications, uh, encourage good communications, so people come to you with problems. Uh, and aren't punished for that process. Um, and the uh, final C corporately is, uh, is just basically what it says, is if you don't have a compliance culture that comes from the top of your organization um, and you don't think that that can change, I think it's time to get your CV in order and find a different company to work for because somewhere along the line, that company will have, will have a major issue. Um, you know, and I can tell you that, you know, uh, I've seen it, different things in different companies. Uh, I was once general counsel of a generic drug company and I was brought in uh, after the generic drug scandal in the, in the uh, late eighties uh, to help clean up a company and the corporate, corporate culture of that company was rotten from the top. Um, so uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, I, at my current company, shortly after I came in here, uh, I, we, we were looking at a situation where we might need to do a recall and I remember one of the senior executives basically saying, we've got to do what's best for the patient, which meant that there was no question that we were going to do a recall. And I said, that's what I like to hear. Um, you know, um, and a company like Varian's been around for over 70 years because of that type of approach. Uh, you know, which is not to say we never have a problem, but, you know, we know how to address it. I, th I think that's amazing. I think that's awesome because um, my experience sort of matches yours in that you often have to fight a client on things like recalls because they're to them, they see a loss of value, a loss of actual cost. Meanwhile, there's a bigger picture at play. Um, and and the, the most common, um, and it's funny, this is the third time it's, it's come up uh, in like a week, but uh, the Tylenol scandal from the 1980s is, is a great example of how you do a recall right you no one asked them to but j and j went down and pulled everything off the shelves yeah that's um, the classic that's the classic model in any crisis management course 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a little bit about, so you're talking about having these good management practices and you talk about having, um, having a strong corporate body that supports quality, that supports compliance. And, and as you put it uh, quite literally, looks out for the patient. As part of that process, what is the way in which you as a, a regulatory attorney, you as a compliance professional, go out and get, uh, get, get teams ready to actually start bringing a product to market? Uh, are you involved in the clinical research phase? Are you involved in the promotional phase, medical affairs? Which of these are you involved in? And how does that play out for you? Well, I'm involved in a lot of them, actually, because, um, you know, the um, so let's talk, take about it and uh, look at it from a couple of different angles. First of all, um, most of our products uh, that, that Varian has launched over the years are 510K products. So they don't require typically don't require any clinical studies. Um, and uh, so we'll go to market uh, off a you know, determination of substantial equivalence. Um, you know, we could talk a little bit about, you know, what's involved in how you, you know, how that gets launched from a promotional perspective. I mean, in the ideal world, and we've incorporated this uh, into our systems, is that uh, the claims that you want to make about your product need to be looked at early on in the design control process so that you don't get to the end of the day, the, the end of the process, you're about to launch the product and people want to say, oh, I want to see, say we're better than X or something like that. And, and then your PRC team like me and our regulatory folks uh, say, you know, well, where's your substantiation? Uh, well, we, we know it's better. It's a, that's not substantiation. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Because most medical devices, a lot of people don't realize this, are also subject to the Federal Trade Commission standards on uh, substantiation because the FTC has jurisdiction over uh, most the advertising most medical devices. Uh, FDA does not technically have jurisdiction over the advertising of anything other than what's called a restricted device. Uh, which are basically uh, uh, PMA devices that require a pre-market approval application. So your 510K device, with certain very limited exceptions, um, is not subject to FDA's jurisdiction for advertising. Although, don't, don't forsake, however, FDA views practically everything they want to as labeling. So they do have jurisdiction over your labeling. Um, so, but the FDA, the FTC standard uh, on making, for instance, comparative claims, so often could come if they're a health-related claim, could come down. You have to have head-to-head -head clinical trials. So you need, if you're going to be making claims about your products, um, you need to look at those very early in the development process and plan for that in how you are going to, what kind of data you're going to generate. So that's something we uh, at at Varian are, you know, we're trying to we're baking that into the system so that. It, you don't come to the end of the day and say, oh, well, how do we prove this? You know, well, we want to launch and say this. Well, sorry, you can't say that. Um, um, yeah. You know, so um, that's, a, that's a key aspect. And then, you know, there's a more mundane aspects of any launch is that just, you know, 60 to 90 days beforehand, you get a lot of material that comes in that you got to review with care. Um, and so we, you know, work with the product teams on that. And then did a similar thing when I was a, the chief regulatory counsel at Illumo. Um, and uh, so uh, I hope that partially answers your question. Um, it, it does. I, I guess the question I have that goes along with it is a lot of companies divide PRC review into advertising review and then medical affairs does their own review. Um, what is your opinion on something like that? The idea that 
one is advertising, so we need full-blown PRC. One is scientific discussion, so we're going to primarily have medical look at it, and we'll call in other experts as necessary. But what is your take overall? Well, there's, you know, there's a, it, it sort of the, my favorite phrase uh, or my infamous phrase is the devil's in the details. So, um, you know, scientific exchange is, is a uh, recognized uh, sort of, for lack of a better term, safe harbor uh, um, that medical affairs uh, will take advantage of. But simply because it's in medical affairs, for example, doesn't necessarily mean you can you can't affirmatively talk off label. Um, you know, there's, in some companies, I think there's a misunderstanding of that uh, issue. Um, so uh, a lot of so we, we uh, you know, I've seen it done multiple ways, but uh, you know, the two the two companies I've been primarily involved with, uh, most of that will end up in PRC um, as opposed to being solely under the purview of medical affairs. There are occasionally some things like just uh, scholarly articles that we go, we have a separate committee called a medical affairs review committee. Um, so. So, so talk to me a little bit about that, the medical affairs review committee. How is that different? What is the impact? How is it different? Why does it matter? To, why is it different enough? Well, it's, it's, uh, because most of those uh, are those types of things are not they're very scientifically oriented. They're not promotional pieces. They're discussing sort of maybe some uh, uh, an investigator initiated clinical trial or something that was done uh, under a research grant. Um, so they are scholarly papers, uh, and they're not designed to be um, you know to promote a product uh, per se. Um, so, and they re require a review of uh, medical experts and, and how they're, you know, in, in their review. I mean, as I've been around a long time, but I'm, you know, there's certain things I'm not qualified to, to review. Uh, it's good and as good a, you know, a reviewer as I might be. Um, you know, if you want to talk about uh, genetic sequencing or, uh, you know, um, the uh, uh, dynamics of radiation therapy, uh, you know, I've learned a lot, but uh, you know, it's you're going to need someone with a, with a more scientific medical background for for those types of reviews. Yeah. But you don't worry about the types of claims being made in those because you don't think that they they well, typically though they're not making claims. They're uh, in the overt sense of the word. They're discussing a scientific exercise and providing a balanced review of it, of what happened. You know, if they were at the end of the article to say something like, and this proves that we're better than X, uh, right. then, I, you know, or that this proves that, uh, you know, that you can use this to treat a new indicate new indication, then I, I would be concerned. But that's not been an issue that we I've had to face. So. Fair enough. But, yeah. but now we're reaching this world where we're talking about, uh, how should we put this? Um, as, as you know, with Europe, they're now asking for uh, patient-centric, uh, patient lay language summaries, if you will. And you've got the US FDA all about talking about patient centricity. So uh, you, you, talk, you look at ICMJ and they say that if we're gonna publish something, um, they, they want a version that patients can understand as well. How do you start drawing that distinction? Is that still scientific exchange or is that now not scientific exchange anymore for the audience isn't a scientist. Well, I think if you're starting writing writing for the for the patient, uh, you know, you have to be very careful on how you approach that. I mean, and keep in mind that writing 
clearly for a patient is incredibly difficult because the standard is something like an eighth grade education, uh, if not yeah. lower than that. And, uh, you know, um, it's really difficult to write to that level. Um, so, yeah. um, that's, you know, uh, an issue I think it's emerging and I'll have to, you know, pass on, 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 you know, I, I don't have any distinct, uh, I haven't had to deal with that issue. Uh, yet here uh, at Varian or before at uh, at Alumina, so or Fair enough. private practice. So <laughs> I'm going to ask one last question before we Good ask. Question, the... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask one last question before we we sort of move away and ask the, the sort of closing questions that I always do. Um, you talk about PRC review. Are um, and and this is something that the FDA, as you know, has been. Uh, spending more and more time looking at nowadays, which is influencer marketing. Um, and between the FTC and the FDA, there are questions as to how that's happening. Have you, I don't know if you faced this, whether at, uh, in private practice, whether at Illumina, whether at, um, uh, at, at uh, very, uh, where you are, um, but, but do, you, what, do you have any thoughts about influencer marketing and how PRC and MLR can sort of uh, look at it to ensure compliance? Any tips, if you will? Well, I have personally, I, we haven't had to deal with it because I think influencer marketing for very sophisticated gene sequencing equipment, such as aluminum markets or the types of products we sell, you know, you're not going to have, um, you know, just celebrity X um, out there saying, oh, oh you want to you want to use this one uh, or I had great results with this, you know, cured my cancer. Uh, you know, that doesn't have any credibility. So uh, it's not an issue that, uh, that I've had to, to f focus on. However, I do think it's a very valid issue uh, because, uh, you know, depending on, you know, the, your average consumer out there, they run the gamut on how gullible they might be uh, or how might impressed they might be by someone of note uh, has notoriety, uh, whether positive or negative notoriety. Uh, so, um, you know, I think it's something that does require significant attention but uh, fortunately I, it's not been a headache I've had to worry about so. fair enough um, as you know uh, I usually aim for these to be about 15 20 minutes you are unfortunately far too interesting 15 20 minutes right 29 minutes so I do need to start asking you uh, questions to uh, to uh, to close up but um, the first question I always ask just so everyone's aware is how can people contact you and you've been kind enough to provide your LinkedIn uh, and and people might reach out to you on that so Thank you for yeah, that. Also, I didn't mention it, but I'm also on Twitter at F, I'm, I'm, I'm FDA Council on Twitter. That's my my handle. FDA so. Council. Perfect. Thank you. Um, my my question for you now is what is something you'd like to ask the audience? Um, I guess uh, as a regulatory lawyer, I'm uh, in compliance and quality uh, emphasis is, you know, what's your major fear from FDA these days? Um, or your regulatory authority if you're outside the United States? Um, so so I, I usually try to answer it in general. Um, I think my, my so, so you at least have one answer, one point, one data point, one datum, if you will. Uh, my, my general fear right now is the FDA is so focused on COVID. Uh, what is their bandwidth right now for other uh, approvals and other enforcement. It seems like everything's taken a little bit of a backseat. Um, so, so I know that they have tremendous amounts of, of uh, both money and and power. But can they can they use that 
right now in a way that um, allows you to address the needs of COVID, but also address the other patient needs. So that's my personal thought. I think that's a good point. We also see that spillover just in the entire healthcare community in general. But uh, exactly. you know, and you're seeing that uh, this year, this month, uh, you, if you look at the NFL broadcasts, um, they are reminding you that uh, you know just because COVID's out there, don't forget about cancer. Don't don't avoid the screening for that. And we saw uh, in our uh, at our customers that there was a you know, real inability for patients to get in to get screened or treated. Uh, and, and the what was continued to be done was actually somewhat miraculous as to um, keeping systems going uh, by our teams. Uh, and also, uh, you know, that you know, hats off to the healthcare providers for everything they they did during that time, and continue to do. Exactly. Um, here's my next question. What's something you've learned in the last month? In the last month, uh, what have I learned? Um, this may sound really silly, but um, uh, I have a uh, nine-year-old Weimaraner, and she likes to curl up, and she looks like one of those roly-poly uh, uh, um, bugs when she does. Uh, and I found out that uh, I always call them a potato bug, but they're actually t technically probably a pill bug. And they're um, uh, from a whole, they're, they're part of the sort of the whole uh, arthropod uh, uh, species. So I learned a little bit huh. about pill bugs. There you go. Did not even know there was such a thing as a pill bug. It just learned something new right there. Yeah. Uh, next question. Tell us one unique thing about yourself. Uh, well, uh, one unique thing about myself or that happened, well, I'll tell something that happened to me. Uh, sure. My, sure, why my not? senior year in college, I became very infamous because I won not one, but two raffles that they held. Um, the first being a, uh, uh car, um, and Whoa. The second one being an all expenses paid trip to, for two to Bermuda for six days. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I was the most hated person on the Bowdoin College <laughs> campus for, for, so, that, that is, and, and uh, I will, I'll take that, I'll take that, uh, hate all the, all the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I have to imagine you have to have gone, damn it. I, I wish I'd have just played the lottery. That, that, that would have well, been the, simpler. The, the joke after was there was there going to be a third, uh, raffle, which I wasn't able to participate in, which was being an all expenses paid trip for, for two with Michael Swift to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> No. There you go. Uh, and, and I have to imagine that the, that the ladies would have loved you for it. Uh, so good for you. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I was seeing some <laughs> at the time, so it wasn't something I could leverage. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, she must have been very happy. Uh, here's another question. What's something that made you happy in the last week? Oh, uh, that's really easily. Uh, our dog uh, had a, a very large uh, mammary tumor. Uh, looked like a softball hanging from her chest. Um, oh, wow. And uh, we had surgery removed about three weeks ago, got the PATH report uh, about a week ago, and all clear. No cancer. So oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. So she's snoring in the background. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. My, my dog's a pro Yeah, he's out there right now. Um, it was wonderful having you, Mike. Thank you so much again for coming on. And I do hope you'd consider coming back again. Oh, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I'm, uh, we have other things we can talk about? <laughs> oh, you're a wealth of information. Uh, it'll be great to have you on again. Thank you again for coming yeah. on. Thanks for having me, Darshan. Be well. Stay safe.